You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this episode, we continue our spotlight on reuse with a deep dive into the subject of waste. We want to bring you a bit of inspiration as we enter the holiday season, so we're headed to the Design Museum to see how designers across the globe are tackling waste and exploring new materials. My stellar co-host, George Morgan, is unable to join me to record this episode, so I'm solo today. This is episode 20 of Climate Champions. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, spread the word, and take time to rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. We have much in store for the new year. Waste is the area where design can have the biggest impact, as opposed to, say, carbon emissions, which is a very big, nebulous and knotty issue. If you think about waste right at the beginning of any project, it changes the nature of that project straight away. Let's really embrace the conversation about waste. Let's see waste not just as a critique that no one really wants to deal with, but actually as an opportunity, as a tremendous material opportunity on the one hand, but also as an intellectual opportunity to, to really challenge the way we do things and to really reinvent them. Today I'm speaking to Justin McGurk, Chief Curator at the Design Museum one of the curators of the exhibition Waste Age, What Can Design Do?, and editor of the excellent accompanying catalog. After I speak to Justin, we'll be discussing Architects Declare's long-awaited practice guide, now available for free download from the AD website with Architects Declare steering group member and ACAN coordinator, Kat Scott. But first, the Waste Age exhibition that has been described by its curators as not just an exhibition, but a campaign. The exhibition runs until February 22nd, so there's still plenty of time to visit. We'll also hear from Justin about Future Observatory, a design museum initiative launched in November 2021, which will take the exhibition themes forward. I first met Justin in 2014 when he had just finished touring Latin American cities for his book Radical Cities, and I was looking for writers to contribute to my issue of AD on Brazil, timed with the Rio Olympics. Today, we're delving into waste, the staggering figures about quantities of global waste, particularly e-waste, the marketing spin that surrounds so many initiatives in this area and some of the many innovations in reuse taking place across the globe that are featured in the Design Museum exhibition. Justin, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Hattie. It's uh, nice to be joining you. So I'd like to start by asking you how you formulated the idea for this exhibition and how did the whole issue of waste come onto your radar? Well, we had been thinking for some time about how we would do an exhibition about design and the environmental crisis. 
And I say the environmental crisis rather than the climate crisis simply because it's more specific. The more specific you can be, the more impact you can have on the conversation. And for me, it came down to waste. Waste is the area where design can have the biggest impact, as opposed to, say, carbon emissions, which is a very big, nebulous and knotty issue. So the exhibition starts with displays conveying the sheer quantity of waste our civilization produces. And a lot of waste relates to the construction and demolition of buildings and infrastructure. I think it's 36.4% just in the EU. You also cite a rather shocking Guardian article from earlier this year that revealed that 200,000 tons of recycled household plastics from the UK were dumped and burned in Turkey. So what particularly stands out for you about the amount of waste and the kinds of waste we produce? Well, I think the sheer volume of it for a start. And in a way, that was the other thing that was important about the framing of this show, because waste as an issue is not something that we talk about enough. It is, by definition, a marginal peripheral issue. And that's where we put our waste, is on the margins and on the peripheries. And for me, the more I thought about it, I realized the extent to which waste is absolutely central to the culture that we've created and the economy that we've created. We've established very comfortable lifestyles that require a high degree of disposability and that we've gone off track. The more we can make waste central to the conversation about society and culture and the economy in general, the more we understand that waste is not an externality but an internality. In fact, if we think about waste at the heart of all of the conversations we have about how we design things, manufacture things, sell things, dispose of things, it could have a genuinely transformative effect on our material culture. The e-waste message comes across loud and clear in your exhibition, and it's really quite shocking. Can you briefly describe for our listeners the overall arc of the exhibition narrative? Yes. So you start with a section called Peak Waste, which effectively confronts the visitor with the scale of the problem we've created and tries to explain how we got there. So there are little rooms that look at a throwaway society, particularly in post-war America, the rise of plastics and how we became addicted to plastic because it is such an incredible and incredibly versatile and useful material. And I'd say the highlight of that section is a major new installation by the Ghanaian artist Ibrahim Mahama, who worked with e-waste from Agbog Bloshi, which is the world's largest e-waste dump in Ghana. And he was using some of the metals extracted from the electronics there and melting them down and creating new frames for these televisions that were also shipped from Ghana. And on the televisions, he's showing films of just how manual the labor is and how basic it is extracting the the metals. And then, so if the first section is a dose of reality, as you go through the exhibition, it gets progressively more optimistic. And the second section, precious wastes, is looking at the value of materials and specifically recycling and the circular economy. And then the third section, post-waste, tries to envisage where we go next, because recycling is not a solution in and of itself, and we need to just shift our material cultures 
away from things like plastic, steel, concrete, towards more less extractivist materials and more grown and organic materials. That's the argument we make. And so in the final section, you start to conjure a, a future which looks and feels and smells differently and includes things made out of algae and mycelium and these very experimental nascent organic materials and other things that are more established like clay building and building out of cross-laminated timber. And um, what we want to create in the exhibition is a sense of the change happening. We want to create a sense of hope and optimism and, and present a critical mass of ideas and approaches and materials and a wide section of the thinking that architects and designers are doing to confront this problem and to say it's not unsolvable, it's not intractable, and we are in the change. One of your curators, Gemma Curtin, states in her introduction that it's not just an exhibition, it's a campaign. How do you see that? What do you mean by that? Well, it was always the ambition of the exhibition to be a campaign, and perhaps it didn't become a campaign in the literal sense of taking billboards out on high streets. But the way I see it now, it's a campaign to make waste central to the conversation. Like I say, waste is, is always an afterthought. If you think about waste right at the beginning of any project, it changes the nature of that project straight away. But let's really embrace the conversation about waste. Let's see waste not just as a critique that no one really wants to deal with, but actually as an opportunity, as a tremendous material opportunity on the one hand, but also as an intellectual opportunity to really challenge the way we do things and to really reinvent them. So in putting the exhibition together, how have you navigated the maelstrom of greenwash and spin that permeates this sector? And how have you curated what to include? Or is it up to the viewer to decide? That's an excellent question and a really difficult one. And I think part of the problem we have at the moment is that any public-facing company of any worth is making environmental statements and um, commitments, and too much of the so-called green economy at the moment involves major companies changing 1% of their operation and putting 50% of their marketing budget behind it. That is so true, and this is something I come up against again and again, and I think that's very well put. It's really challenging. I mean, I'd say that's particularly true of the fashion world, where I'm seeing campaigns by major fast fashion brands, which make them look like environmental saviors when really they're major, major culprits. I'd say one of the tricky things about making an exhibition is that in the end, it comes down to objects. And it would be a misunderstanding to think that we can simply replace certain kinds of objects with other kinds of objects or buy different things and that that would solve the problem. And many of the problems are systemic. That's clear. And it's always difficult to make an exhibition about systems and about social issues. And, and the systems and social issues do underlie a lot of what we put on display. But the other way of looking at it is that decarbonization is a great abstraction. We talk about decarbonization and we think about the atmosphere and we think about energy and all of those things. But what does decarbonization look like at the day-to-day -day level? What does it look like in the buildings we make and in the objects we hold and buy? And so there is a material dimension to this, which does revolve around 
designing and producing different things and making them differently. Coming back to your question more fundamentally, what things have we put on show? Well, we've tried to demonstrate the different scales at which people are thinking about this. So if you take recycling, there are things in the show which are at a very small community scale. And there are things, you know, design teams in places like the Netherlands developing home recycling machines and things that are quite small scale and distributed. And then there are people who are extracting plastics from the sea and turning them into chairs and sneakers and other mass-produced objects. For your audience, there's an architectural dimension to this, and we have some work on display by Lacaton and Vassal. And I think they've been absolute pioneers in using what's there, their mantra being never demolish, because demolition is waste and demolition is an act of violence against the climate, effectively. Yes, the built environment examples that you include, uh, such as Lacaton Vassal's work in Bordeaux or the Sterling shortlisted cork house in Eaton, will be familiar to many of our listeners. What I found really compelling, although when I saw it, I realized it wasn't that new, is the work by Amsterdam-based Drift Studio, where they present all the elements of a VW Beetle or an iPhone as rectangular blocks of materials through a process they call disassembly. And also some work from MIT on tagging and tracking e-waste across the world. It's frightening. And you've really cast the net quite wide on what you include. How do you strike a balance between what one might call, say, waste porn and compelling images that inspire action? I'm thinking of the very large photographs by Canadian photographer Edward Bratinsky of eerily spectacular copper and lithium mines in northern Chile, or the endless sea of car tires as far as the eye can see dumped in Wesley, California, about 90 minutes east of San Francisco. This is the design museum, after all, and you're treading a delicate line between presenting arresting visual images and educating and inspiring people to go away and take action. You're absolutely right. It is a difficult balance. Edward Tinsky's photographs do two things. You could categorize them under waste porn, if you like, because they document what I would call a new sublime, the creation of man-made waste landscapes that are so vast and incomprehensible and fearsome in a way. But they also tell us about those externalities I was talking about earlier. They tell us about the very obvious links between something like a car and a landscape of tires or the very obvious link between a, a smartphone and a lithium mine or any piece of technology, say, and a copper mine. And it just tries to make those things manifest in the landscape and, and gives you a sense of their scale. So I think they're important, but obviously one doesn't want to demoralize. And I think that's why you know we, we concentrate that stuff in the first section, which is really about the scale of the problem. And then we move on to the solutions afterwards. So with certain materials, especially recycled plastic, there's a definite downgrading of the material. It becomes grainier and murkier, sometimes more beautiful. But this can only be done so many times. And as you mentioned earlier, the whole notion of using more natural materials seems a promising way forward. And I'm really glad you've included that. I mean, the balance between regenerative materials versus recycled materials and reuse of what we've got. It's, it's all part of this. 
Yes, I, I mean, I'd like to say, and this struck me very early on in the process, is that I would hate it if people thought that it was a show about recycling. There is an element of recycling, and I think there's an element of recycling that, that we need to master to deal with the plastics that are already in circulation. But I would like to be really clear and say I don't think recycling is the answer. And even if it were, the recycling systems we have are woefully inadequate and the recycling rates we have are just nowhere near addressing the problem. So there's that. But either way, we need to stop producing, putting virgin plastic into the system because I'm worried by some of the things I've been reading about how the fossil fuel industry is gearing up its plastic production because they're all bracing themselves for a decline in petrol use. What are they going to use the fossil fuels for? They need to find new uses for plastics. You know, I get depressed when I see Coca-Cola saying things like, and I may be paraphrasing this, all of our bottles will be recycled by 2050. And you think, well, really? Another 30 years of the biggest polluter in the world? 2050 is eons away. Even 2030 is still nine years out. A lot can be done in nine years if we take action now. I've recently chaired several events and workshops where the discourse is, what are you going to do starting tomorrow in your projects? Or Monday? Or within six months? We have to be starting now. Tell us a little bit about the exhibition's design by Material Cultures. I believe you've got timber partitions and an adobe block wall, as well as materials salvaged from a previous exhibition. And you've asked the Urge Collective to audit the upfront emissions of the exhibition. This has been covered at considerable length on Jeffrey Hart's Building Sustainability podcast, which I'll include in the show notes. But it would be great if you could give us a brief overview from the client side. And does this represent a major departure from business as usual? Is it something you can take forward in future exhibitions? Yes, I would say this does represent a departure from business as usual, and it was a very significant effort. And it began with the previous show, actually. So in the summer, we staged an exhibition on Charlotte Perrion, which was designed by Assemble. Even at that point, we were asking Assemble to think about And in fact, I think they were instinctively thinking about modular plinths. If you think about what an exhibition is, it's a lot of temporary infrastructure, plinths and walls, MDF and plasterboard, which gets made to very specific dimensions and then gets thrown away at the end of the exhibition, in a lot of cases. And there's a real problem for museums in terms of if you wanted to reuse it, where do you store that stuff? And, you know, it's never quite the right size for the objects in the next show. So... In a nutshell, exhibitions are very wasteful. With the Perion plinths, because they were made of these silicate blocks that were modular and you could just reuse them to make plinths of different shapes, we reused those. So we put that in the brief for Material Cultures. But Material Cultures did an amazing job of thinking about how you would use cleaner materials, more organic materials or recyclable materials and certainly biodegradable materials. So they were using a lot of timber, Uh, Wood wool, which is a a material that we have quite a lot of in the museum anyway, in our ceilings and things. So they were using that for walls and they were lining the walls with a clay render so that we could pin things up on them. Then there's a section, a circular room later in the exhibition, which is made of clay strops. So these are unfired clay bricks 
And the fact that they're unfired means that they effectively require a lot less energy to produce, so they, they're less carbon intensive. And all of that can be taken away and reused or is, is just organic, so it can biodegrade afterwards. Right, so it's not load-bearing, so it's easy to do. Yes, exactly. And then, as you said, we commissioned Urge Collective to do an environmental audit of the show and to think about every aspect of what we were doing, so from the number of emails we were sending to the weight of the objects in the show and how far they've traveled, to try and work out how much carbon we'd used. In fact, what they said was that the biggest shift that we could have made had already happened, which was that the, the museum runs on renewable energy. So just through that fact alone, we had saved 95% of the carbon costs of this exhibition. But then they went into a lot more detail and they revealed that it was great that we were using timber instead of these problematic materials like plasterboard and MDF. But of course, we still used a lot of stainless steel screws and the screws were one of the highest carbon impacts that the show had. That was amazing. And I forget the number, but it's thousands of screws, obviously. It's so interesting. It's only when you start to actually measure this stuff that you see where the impacts are. So what will happen to the exhibition when it's over? Well, that's the next phase of the audit, effectively, is what happens afterwards in the kind of what you might call the post-consumer waste phase. And some of the material, you know, we'll, we'll look to material cultures to see what they can reuse or send back to suppliers. And I know that for the bricks from the Charlotte Perignon exhibition, which we reused, Assemble had a project in mind for those. So we're trying to kind of feed them into, into supply chains for other projects or give them back to suppliers. So yeah, that's the next phase. And I think some of it is still to be revealed. Justin, I'd like to ask you about another aspect of the show. I really like the fact that the exhibition includes a section devoted to policy and legislation. What do you see as the single most transformative policy change that could be made in the UK to drive this agenda? I would love to see a lot of new regulation coming in. We're seeing some things happen, like the right to repair. So there was some legislation saying that manufacturers had to make spare parts available for 10 years. I think we need to inculcate a repair culture. We need to reduce the use of certain materials. I mean, I just think we need to get authoritarian about this. The use of plastics has to be really reconsidered at a legislative level. And in terms of the construction and architectural worlds, we need to stop incentivizing developers to demolish buildings. That's a really clear one. You don't pay VAT on new developments, so that we need to reconsider that and we need to regulate it so that people are, developers are encouraged to reuse existing buildings and adaptive reuse. And that's going to be at the core of a sustainable architecture going forward. So in the exhibition catalogue, you explore potential solutions to the waste crisis, and you refer to a globally decentralized systems approach and hyper-local solutions versus universal solutions. Can you explain that? Yes. I think the 20th century was extraordinary at taking a few biochemical innovations and a few materials and making them global. Plastics, steel, concrete. And what's interesting is to think about more bioregional solutions. I would say that Atelier Luma in Arles in the south of France 
is an interesting case. It's like a material laboratory and workshop where they're developing materials from the local bioregion. A lot of them agricultural waste materials like sunflower waste, some of it round earth, some algae, you know, and all kinds of natural materials from the local region and testing them as construction materials in their own projects. So some of that stuff has gone into the the new Gary building, the new Gary museum that's been built there, and some of it's gone into the cafes and other spaces. That's super interesting to think about what a world of a thousand different material solutions might look like at smaller scales. And I think that's a whole new way of, it's not a new way, I mean, obviously it's a very ancient way of thinking about things, but it's a shift for our civilization. So at the end of the exhibition, there's a large wall panel that lists all the individual actions we can take to help avert climate change. And obviously this is an exhibition addressed to the public to raise awareness, but I'm wondering whether this doesn't put too much emphasis on consumer behavior when the real culprit is the economic structures we live in. You know, architects are always talking about being a vegetarian or vegan versus reducing carbon in the projects you're delivering and the kind of scale of where one can make a difference. One of my mantras going into this exhibition, and perhaps it didn't come out clearly enough, is it's not your fault. (laughs) I wanted to say it's not your fault. And I think there's been a very concerted move to make this a consumer problem. Yes, I think there are things that consumers can do, clearly. But for me, the emphasis of this show is really on manufacturers, designers, and government. That the majority of the change needs to happen upstream. Yeah. Well, that leads into my next question. There was a review on, I'm not sure if you've seen this, on Central St. Martin's Architecture After Architecture blog called Mold that critiques the exhibition for, quote, reinforcing the planetary crisis we're in by financializing the detritus of capitalism. The reviewer suggests that the exhibition's underlying narrative is that more economic activity can solve the climate emergency. And she says, why not learn to darn the clothes you have rather than hanker after new recycled ones? What's your take on this? Yes, it's interesting that you raise that. I also read it. Um, And I, I certainly agree with her last point. Absolutely, why not darn the things that you have? I think that would be an underlying lesson of the show, really. I have to say, I, I thought that review was a willful misreading of the message of the show. And it was someone who was looking very closely at certain things and not looking at at the overall message. And Timothy Morton is very good on this. He says that there's there's a degree to which left cynicism, the tendency to laugh at people making incremental changes like driving a Prius, maps very neatly onto US Republican do nothingism or Guyan fatalism. And I think there's a degree to which it's easy to go to an exhibition like that and say the underlying issues are are more complicated than this or it's not just about material culture. You know, what does decarbonisation look like at the material level? And we're also talking about an exhibition, not a book. So you have to present things. And I think there was a certain left cynicism and naivety in that critique. Well, that's why I want to move on next to how you plan to take this all forward. The Design Museum recently launched Future Observatory, an AHRC-funded research project that will take many of these themes forward. 
And I understand that you'll be hosting four designers in residence at the museum and building partnerships with academia and business and organizing various roundtables and symposia. What can you tell us about your plans at this point? Well, it's a new initiative. It's effectively a pilot year funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, as you said. And the aim here is to think about a lot of the brilliant work that is happening in British universities and higher education institutions, and to specifically think about how it can be taken to the next level. So how do you take it out of the academy? How do you connect it to industry, to local authorities, to policymakers? And effectively, how do you help it achieve a form of impact? What we were observing is that there's still often a disconnect between a lot of design research and the stakeholders that can help it achieve scale or achieve impact in the real world. And so there seemed to be a place for an institution like a design museum, in fact, that could bring people together, bring stakeholders together to discuss this research and also to showcase the research, give it more visibility, oxygenate it, and help it find the partners that it needs to to go forward. And um, I think the Design Museum is uniquely well-placed to do that. So are any of the initiatives you've identified in the architecture space? Yes, there's, um, there's one, for example, based in Cambridge, which is about timber construction. Huge topic. A huge topic. And, and, you know, while there are amazing things happening in the real world already, I, I think War Thistleton has been leading on this in this country and, and doing some amazing developments. There's still a lot of research to be done in, in new forms of timber construction. So that's just one. And that's a case where we invited researchers to apply for funding through us and through the AHRC for support where they came as a partnership. So an academic institution and an industry or local authority partner teaming up and applying as a unit so that you build in the partnerships right from the beginning. It's not just about research, but they come with stakeholders. And I think that's an interesting model. That's fantastic. Well, I'm keen to get this episode out before the holidays because I hope that listeners will go along to the Design Museum. This is an exhibition that you can read at numerous levels. I mean... Families will enjoy it as well as people with more specialist interest. There's a lot to take in through videos and text, so you can read it on a lot of different levels. If people are interested to know more about your work, where can they find you, Justin? Well, people can email me at my museum address, which is justin.mcgurk at designmuseum.org. They can follow some of this on the website. And as for Future Observatory, we're... Uh, Obviously, we've just launched, so we won't have a website for a couple of months, but there'll be more information there. Great. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Hattie. It's been a real pleasure. Our second guest today is Kat Scott. Sustainability and Regenerative Design Manager at DRMM Architects and a coordinator at ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. Today, Kat is speaking to us in her role as a member of the Architects Declare Steering Group. Kat, it is lovely to have you on the podcast today. 
to talk to us a little bit about the AD Practice Guide, which was launched at COP and has been launched now here in London. Can you tell me a little bit about the scope and ambition of the guide? Yeah, sure. So the practice guide, I suppose, came about having looked at a wide range of guidances in the industry against our declaration points. And I suppose it's a little bit of a step change from existing guidance in the industry, because what we've really tried to do is give a kind of holistic view of what we mean by sustainable regenerative architecture. So it tries to give a really broad coverage that addresses all of the now 12 declaration points and essentially pave the way for practitioners to get to grips with what other guidance documents are out there. So signposting to a huge range of documents that our industry has developed itself. That's one thing that I thought was particularly compelling when I when I'm reading through it is how much guidance there is out there now and to have it all organized in a in a clear way and signposted so that you can really get to what you need quickly I think is a big step. So, who were the main contributors to this guide? That was brilliant actually. How many people were involved in this? We've had about 35 contributors who were part of the core group who wrote and developed the thinking behind the guide and then we had another 15 reviewers to that and then we've got something like 50 or more practices who we contacted to include images of their project work to illustrate because we know architects and architect professionals are very visual people we felt that this had to be a really visual guide so to illustrate best practice or exemplars of each of the key themes. I don't think any of us can kid ourselves that there's one project that does everything that this guide is asking for. So instead we've included loads and loads of images that illustrate each individual smaller component of, of what we think the change needs to be. It looks really good now and it, it's, I saw an earlier draft which I thought was quite challenging to wade through and now you can really find your way. It's very, very clear and simple, straightforward. So who's it for? Hopefully it's for everyone working in architecture, whoever you are. If you're at part one, just out of university, feeling full of excitement and passion about changing the way that maybe your practice works, hopefully it will be useful to shove in front of the um, more senior team members and to signpost them to the graphics that you might be able to use in some of your presentations. Or whether you're more senior in a management team, whether you're an associate, a partner, a director, to really show you what you need to be thinking about and doing to meet your architects' declare commitments. And we hope that as well it, it helps to address any concerns that people have about whether they should or shouldn't become an architect's declare signatory. So hopefully it helps alleviate some of their nervousness or um, make them feel like this is actually somewhat achievable. I really think, you know, there's so many tips in there in this guide that no matter where you are along the journey, you're going to find something relevant that you can work on. And it's all about taking pieces of this and moving forward. And we've also developed the guidance to be in two parts. So we've got guidance, which is general, and then we've also added on to that with additional steps for larger practices. So we kind of fully appreciate that not everything that we're setting out is necessarily possible for a smaller practitioner or a smaller practice to, to take on, but that also there's an additional responsibility when you are a larger practice, that you have visibility and responsibility to ensure that you're leading the way because larger practices obviously have so much more in terms of resource and time and probably technologies. So tell us a little bit more about how the guide is structured and how you envision people will use it. 
So the guide is essentially in two main parts, with an introduction which gives an overview of the climate context with killer facts. So we hope that the killer facts will be really useful for architects to memorise. I know a lot of us have memorised some key statistics already, but we've tried to be a bit broader in what our key statistics that we remember should be. So looking beyond just carbon and looking towards wider biodiversity issues and, and, and also some hopeful statistics in there for you too. It's not all doom and gloom. And then following the introduction when we give an overview of the architects declare and declaration points including our new 12th declaration point about social equity and climate justice we then have the two main parts which the first addresses a roadmap for practice so in terms of business operations and putting your own house in order with a five-step plan to follow and an additional resource in the appendix which is actually a framework for how you might be able to develop an action plan for your own studio and I can put my hand on my heart and say it's really useful because I'm using it in my practice at DRMM. So part two of the guide is then all about project design and that's where the bulk of the report is. It's a kind of super wicked problem because there's so many facets to trying to make buildings more sustainable, more regenerative even. And right at the beginning of that part two, we really set out the case for regenerative design rather than sustainable design. So we kind of set the groundwork here for why we need to think in a whole system way, not just in a blinkered way about energy and carbon, but thinking really much bigger than that. So what we found when we were writing this guide is that in a way, energy, carbon and those sorts of aspects of sustainability are really well covered, for example, by groups such as Leti, the London Energy Transformation Initiative, have developed so many brilliant guidances. And also for Retrofit, they've just released a brilliant guide. But the aspects of the Architects Declare declaration points or commitments, if you like, that were less well covered were ones relating particularly to nature, to people, to the softer aspects of what we mean by sustainability. So we've got a good section on ecology, for example, and and we cover all of the carbon and the energy aspects as well, and we signpost you to those resources by others which are really useful. But for example, we have sections on biodiversity, on water use, on human factors and climate justice. And I mean, climate justice is a really important area which until now we hadn't actually incorporated in the declaration but over the course of the last year with all of the work that had been done through Black Lives Matter all of the work that's been developed by for example Fridays for Future on the importance of addressing climate justice we really felt it was an omission that we needed to address and we looked to our international declaration sisters or family if you like in Australia in Canada in countries where they had adapted their Architects Declare Declaration text, the original text that came from the UK, to suit their own context. And we found that they were writing in a way that was addressing this much better than we were. So just before releasing this guide, we'd consulted on a new declaration point for climate justice. So that got incorporated just at the point that we released this guidance. Part of this um, climate and biodiversity emergency issue is also the issue of people and how how are people going to live comfortably, affordably, sustainably in their homes and in urban places? And how are they going to live there healthily? You know, how can we make internal environments that help foster a healthy human habitat? Because so many of our buildings are essentially making us sick. And then we also importantly talk about adaptability and resilience, not just making things better now, but also looking into the future and the very likely changes to our climate, to our society, to 
um, everything that are going to come over the next 30 to 50 years to 100 years even and looking to ensure that we're thinking about those things now so that we're not designing in redundancy so that we're designing in a way that can last and anticipate these changes and also enable people to weather those storms as they come in the future. And then we close off the report talking about performance gaps, which I'm sure you'll be very happy to know. Okay, wait, before we go on to performance gap, I think it's really great that the AD manifesto and this guide are kind of live documents that you are constantly revisiting and updating as feedback comes in. I just think that's the way we have to be working because this whole arena is changing so, so fast. How do you see the guide evolving going forward? So the guide is fully intended to be a live document in the sense that we know as soon as we clicked release or upload to PDF, it would be out of date almost immediately. And actually, we were proven right because less than two weeks later, the UK GBC released its roadmap for whole life net zero carbon, for example, which has heaps of useful information that we would have loved to have signposted in this guide. So what we're hoping and anticipating and working towards now is that this guide will be updated quite at what time scale we're talking about remains to be seen. And we really need more volunteer support to come forward to help us with taking this forward and ensuring that it is up to date. And already on our website, we've got a feedback form open for anyone to anyone who's looked at the guide to respond to with any constructive criticism on the guide as it currently stands or comments about how it could evolve and incorporate more knowledge in the future. Um, So we very much hope that our signatory network are going to help ensure that this guide stays relevant, um, is updated with anything that anyone's found useful, and ensure that it's a resilient document. My observation is that the profession's grasp and understanding of resiliency has a long way to go. I helped the NLA with a report over the summer on London and resiliency, and it was really, for me, a deep dive into this subject, and I think it's one we really need to push out and have much more discussion around. And the NLA's Resilient London Report is a really good starting point because it's very straightforward and you can see how these issues are affecting London right now. Let's talk then more about how do you see the knowledge sharing and disclosing performance So what we're really hoping is that our practitioners will now start to disclose and share knowledge on their projects rather than just keeping knowledge in-house. And we also think that there's so much to be learned through monitoring building performance in use and that actually embracing this as a way of adapting the way that we design in the future is hugely important. The only way we can understand if our buildings are working is if we ask the people who are living in them and if we look at basic data coming out of them living there. So we've emphasised the importance of that within the guide. We've also given a key bullet points that come out of things like the REBA 2020 plan for use that gives an idea for architects and architectural practitioners to move forwards with undertaking their own study. And then the conclusion of the report very much acknowledges that there is more to do, so there's more to come in the future, and that we hope that um, practitioners will help us on the journey forward by sharing knowledge and being honest about areas that there's still room for improvement in our industry. For example, the aspects around ecology and biodiversity and water are aspects which are undervalued and that's not just for example within our own institutions but that's on a national scale that nature is just undervalued and we just don't address it that well in for example planning documents policy and so there's a huge piece of work to be done on that 
from all kind of angles. And I mean, Architects Declare submitted a response jointly with ACAN last September for the England Tree Strategy, for example, on this subject, talking about why we need kind of more biodiversity in urban places. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, for example. I think it's great how much work has been done to incorporate energy and carbon into standard industry guidances. And now I just really hope that the kind of aspects that make architecture move towards regenerative now start to be fed in as well and that we always keep pushing ourselves to do better and not resting on our laurels as soon as we're able to achieve for example net zero operational carbon. Well thank you very much Kat. So where exactly do people go if they want to download the guide and where do they find this feedback form that you're talking about? So it's all on the website. If you go on to architectsdeclare.com forward slash resources, you'll see a hyperlink to the AD practice guide. And there's also a short form signposted there um, that you can click on and give feedback. And if you want to write to us with any interest in volunteering, then please email us at hello at architectsdeclare.com. Great. Thank you so much, Kat. This is the last episode of Climate Champions for 2021. To start the new year, we're very excited to be bringing you several episodes of Voices from Abroad who may be less familiar to our listeners. Meanwhile, happy holidays all. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, Please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. (music) 